When I made it to my home place, I found triumph of the will. Where once lay a shining city, stood a fortress on a I'm Henry. This is Fortress on a Hill. Thank you for joining us. For those new to the podcast, BT, Danny, and I are three leftist combat veterans who take the military and veteran stories of the day and provide some much-needed historical context and examination. Dr. Jeffrey Kay, welcome to Fortress on a Hill. Thank you for being with us today. Hi, thank you very much. Glad to be here. So, um... You and I discussed earlier that the the main the main thrust of wanting to have you on was to discuss the info you have about there being two torture programs uh, run during the Bush administration. But there right. were a couple other things that I wanted to touch on briefly before that. And one of the very fascinating things that you've written about is about the biowarfare report regarding U.S. forces in the Korean War. And I was wondering if you can mm-hmm. give our listeners a a bit of an overview on that, uh, starting with uh, plague-infested fleas. Right. Well, plague-infested fleas was an article I wrote talking about um, one particular, uh, well, within the context of the article, I I mentioned others, a series of attacks um, that took place in spring of uh, 1952, in which the United States Air Force dropped um, in various uh, forms uh, plague um, fleas that ha- uh, human fleas that had been uh, uh, meddled with to carry the plague virus, and they were dropped over um, various villages and areas of North Korea and uh, ultimately China um, as the war proceeded north and um, killed it's not an unclear amount of people. There were various reasons why we don't know how many. Um, People uh, actually died of plague, but in my article, I talk about some of the cases and some of the documented deaths. And in particular, in trying to humanize what happened, you know, looked at uh, you know the death of one particular villager um, back in April, just you know this time this month of year, April uh, of 1952, a young uh, peasant by the name of Pak Yun Ho, just so people can put a, a name and a face. To you know, to what happened to, to people. Now, this was part of a larger series, as, as investigators looked into this, of um, experimental biological warfare um, attacks that were made by the U.S. military, and of course denied strenuously that they were made by the U.S. military in uh, in in 1950. Well, arguably late 1951 through uh, earlier. 1953, mid-1953, when the, the um, uh, um, negotiations over an armistice became much more serious and, and the war was winding down. But the primary year of the, of the, of the experimental warfare was in uh, 1952. I say experimental, but a decision apparently was made according to one of the airmen who was captured, a, a colonel in the Marine Corps, uh, very high up actually, um, uh, who had been chief of staff. Um, who ha- had ended up being captured and controversially confessed uh, about the use of germ warfare and uh, 
documented uh, for for his captors, the Chinese. Uh, you know what what how this came about, who the personnel were, the generals, etc., and, uh, and and how they proceeded. And he said that in May of 1952, they uh, felt ready to go to a larger scale form of the uh, of the warfare. That the experimental period had ended, or the purely experimental period had ended. Now was time for more large scale strategic biological warfare. And, and the thing about all this, as bizarre as it may sound to your listeners, was that um, this was not the first time that large-scale biological warfare had taken place in um, modern times. And in fact, um, many is, of the same personnel apparently were involved. And I'm speaking here of something many, many, if not most of your listeners will have ever heard of called uh, Japan's Unit 731, um, led by a man, a doctor, and a military man by the name of Shiro Ishii. And <clears throat> the Unit 731 personnel, um, and more and more comes out about um, this, this Japanese unit's uh, um, uh, history, um, were part of the Kwantung Army in Manchuria, although they had divisions um, elsewhere in uh, research units in Tokyo, but also um, operations that took place in other theaters of the war that Japan was involved in. And um, they were experimenting with um, and using biological warfare. Japanese experiments on this uh, went back into the 1930s, and they launched into a full-scale uh, use of uh, biological warfare to defeat the Chinese and allied forces in China. Um, during the late 30s, because uh, the war there started earlier than it did, uh, Americans think the war began either in 1939 when Hitler invaded Poland or in 1941 when Japan bombed Pearl Harbor. But actually, uh, most people who look at what came to be known as World War II recognize that uh, the war really began earlier in the mid-1930s between Japan and China when China and Japan invaded and uh, took over Manchuria, which is this huge northern section of uh, China. And, it, and at one point, I had a battle with the uh, Soviet Union, interestingly enough, which was um, the Soviets kind of won. Um, and there was a kind of stalemate between the two countries for a number of years until towards the end of the war, the Soviets, uh, at Roosevelt's um, uh, request, invaded China in August of 1945, just before the atomic bombs dropped. And, and one of the things the Soviets found was uh, they invaded and, and overran the headquarters of Unit 731, so who were ordered to destroy everything. And it's, it's really in part through the capture of a number of high officials and certain materials still that weren't destroyed by the Unit 731 people that we know what happened. But there's plenty of testimony from survivors and people who were there during the war. But what happened was the United States government, you know, rushed to capture in Europe Nazi scientists and in Japan Japanese scientists who had been involved in the development of weapons of mass destruction, which include, of course, biological weaponry, were, were moving as quickly as they could, and the, the Soviets were doing the same, by the way, to capture um, these scientists so they could use them for their own side or at least prevent the other side from using them, so the story goes. And uh, the United States uh, um, made a, a deal 
with the these war criminals. I mean, they, 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 it's believed today that, that anywhere from half a million to a million people were killed in China by biological warfare, I mean, which is a hideous way to die. We're talking about use of plague and dysentery, diseases most people don't hear about, like glanders, and anthrax, you know. Um, and uh, the U.S. made a deal and gave, even though the war crimes trials were going on, and even though in Germany people were being put on trial for experimenting with biological warfare on, on living prisoners, the Japanese who were doing the same, if not even on a larger scale, were let off the hook. And many of them apparently went to work for U.S. forces. And they were interviewed by the people at Fort Detrick, um, at that time the center of U.S. biological warfare uh, research. And um, it was all kept top secret. And when the Soviets put some of the Unit 731 prisoners on trial, finally, in 1949, um, the U.S. said it was just a show trial made up, and, and they denied that any of this had ever happened. So at the, very, the, the origins of, of this, we find a, a major cover-up, in fact, the largest, really, cover-up um, coming out of World War II, which was the total cover-up of, the, of, the, of the Japan's use of biological warfare. And so that's the background coming into how the world was going to respond to um, the use of biological warfare. So why do I go into this? You, you were asking me, though, <laughs> I'm sorry, not a, I don't think you were asking me about that. You were asking me about, um, I'm sorry if you can remind me of your initial question. I think I strayed off. Um, about the, the biowarfare report oh, yes. that regarded the, uh, the fleas. Oh, the fleas, right. So it is believed, we don't know for sure, because so many, so many of the documents were either destroyed, we can document that documents were destroyed, or, of course, um, the fact that people were uh, threatened uh, with loss of benefits, uh, court-martial, et cetera, if they would ever speak of these things. So what we have is left is the record of reports that were made and documented by North Korean and Chinese officials and other interested people who came to that part of the world, including um, an organization known as the, came to be known as the International Scientific Commission, which was headed by a top British scientist, uh, Joseph Needham, one of the top uh, biologists of his day, and later to go on and uh, write an incredibly famous and important uh, work on Chinese science and civilization, it was called, multi-volume. And uh, um, anyway, that they, you know, uh, so my report was based on their report. And their report was effectively suppressed in the United States because, number one, um, the U.S. was going to deny that it had done any of this. Number two, the report made the links and brought up the issue of Unit 731, which at the time was totally a top secret held by the United States and not um, officially admitted until the 1990s that that took place so by the United States. So, I mean, that, that, that was a long time of trying to keep all of this secret. Um, and the, uh, you know, my story tells, you know, how, you know, what it's like to be under attack, at least in the 1950s in Korea, by uh, American planes who would, you know, circle low late at night uh, near villages and drop their... Uh, their loads in various formats of insects, um, because uh, this is there are different ways of doing biological warfare, and we, 
I, I could take up all of our time just talking about the research into biological warfare, the different modes of dispersion. This was called, you know, vector-related vector related biological warfare in which a vector, which is usually an insect or it could be an animal, is infected with something, and then those insects and animals, you know, run around, spread around, and, and where they go, they spread the disease, right? Um, <clears throat> or, you, of course, you can just directly spray out toxic chemicals, toxic uh, um, things. But they, in this case, they dropped uh, fleas, human fleas. And, um, and they did these things, as the, as the later investigators uh, were to comment, in a way that just uh, was quite obvious. I mean, wherever these planes were, were circling, you would find insects in masses, you know, the next day. And um, in this case uh, of uh, um, Pak Yun Ho, the, the young man who sadly you know, went out early one morning, unable to sleep, which I can imagine any of your listeners, you know, when the planes are circling your area, enemy planes, you know, not knowing if you're going to be bombed or whatever, and um, went out dawn, around dawn to the, the, the village well, which is a shared water source, you know, off near, not in, within the village, but about 100 yards away. From the habitation and uh, opens it up, you know, the, the top of the well and sees a mass of, you know, huge mass of fleas <laughs> on top of the water. Um, and is like, what, what's going on here? And uh, uh, um, runs and tells his friend, but it was too late for Pak Yun Ho. He must have uh, somehow been bitten because he came so close to that. And um, there already had been reports of attacks. Um, because these people knew uh, that the North Koreans, by the way, had been uh, fought with uh, um, the Mao's armies, the, the Mao Zedong's divisions in China during World War II. You know, you had the Kuomintang and you had Mao's um, Red Army, and they were in a, a very unshaky union in those days. And, and they were, by the way, facilitated by the Americans and by the British, and they were fighting the Japanese. They were all allied together the way that the U.S. and the Soviets were allied together um, in Europe. And um, they, uh, uh, you know, mobilized something called the, the Mobile Epidemic Prevention Corps that they had put together. Um, you know, the, the society really mobilized um, to, to take on these uh, biological attacks. And they did it from the experience they had gathered under the early, during World War II under having to deal with Japanese biological warfare attacks. It turns out, and thank goodness for all of this, for all, for all of us perhaps, that biological warfare, while it could be kind of terrifying, is not too effective when uh, a society is mobilized in a public health fashion. Um, it can really, the damage can be limited. And uh, for all the, uh, it may be one reason why after the early 50s, uh, biological warfare attacks, for the most part, not entirely, although research still goes on, um, has, uh, you know, never was apparently that we could, any place I can find was ever again used, at least in a large-scale fashion, in a military campaign. And it may be because, the, as, as some of the Americans told their captors later when they were captured people, you know, the Pentagon was disappointed by... Um, by the results that they were getting. It just wasn't as good as they had hoped. But, um, but nevertheless, it's a war crime. And, 
um, when the report, you know, the report was published by the International Scientific Commission in late uh, in September, I believe, 1952, and documenting this. Uh, it was about a 60-page report followed by about 700 pages of documentary evidence. In, in, you know, in various appendices, this report was, uh, you know, um, was, was effectively suppressed um, in the in the United States and Western Europe. And when I went looking, you know, I, I only heard of it myself because you know, when you read histories of these events um, or histories, uh, you know, in the footnotes, you'll, uh, anytime there was an allegation about uh, the biological warfare issue. It was, um, they would reference this report, International Scientific Commission report on uh, bacteriological warfare in 1952, Joseph Needham. And so uh, you start looking, well, that must be in the library, right? Or it must be somewhere online. Of course, everything's online. But no, it wasn't online. And it wasn't in any library, right? I hunted down and hunted down. And, uh, um, you know, f finally I was able to obtain a piece of the report. I mean, I might have been able to see a copy of it, as it turns out, I think it was one in the Hoover Institute there in, in the Bay Area, not far from me, but uh, not really that accessible. Um, you know, one in the National Archives, we're going to Washington, D.C. I mean, it just isn't the average American or the average student is not going to be traveling thousands of miles to go view this one or two documents. But so luckily, I just kept my eyes out literally for years until finally I was able to obtain a, a document, a, a copy, which cost me some hundreds of dollars, uh, finally, when I got my chance to get one. And I digitized it in a very readable format so that it could be searchable, and I posted it online. And uh, for the first time in, in about 60 years, Americans could look for themselves and judge. Because, of course, the Americans strenuously denied all this, and I could go more into that. And it, and it is important, but um, to look at the evidence on both sides. But the, um, the there's links to the torture program here because <clears throat> it was uh, because there were dozens of air, of captured soldiers, airmen, and these were many of them were officers had um, admitted that biological warfare took place and gave you know various narratives as to their personal experience with it. Um, this was a, a huge blow to the American propaganda going on during the war. And, uh, and many people were unhappy anyway with the way Korean War was being conducted by the U.S. Uh, there was you know, massive napalm bombing. Uh, uh, there, were, there were bombing dams. Uh, you know, the, the, pro the propaganda of the other side, which was talking about all sorts of war crimes, Shooting, killing of civilians, et cetera. Um, and then on top of it, you hear about biological warfare. You know, the U.S. Uh, really mobilized their own campaign and uh, um, to shoot down. Um, and one thing that so they had to deal with, though, that was really problematic, and there's a whole long history that would be interesting to a show for your listeners anyway, about uh, um, the issue of uh, American POW collaboration with the, quote, enemy, during the Korean War, which was far exceeded, far, far, far exceeded that of any other war the U.S. was ever involved in. And why did that happen? Um, so one reason the CIA came up with as a narrative is that, well, these, these soldiers were brainwashed. The, the, these men were tortured and brainwashed to say the things they did. And, uh, and the North Koreans and the Chinese had developed 
methods of brainwashing and forcing people to say things directly counter to their nearest and dearest uh, um, beliefs by some nefarious psychological means that, that had yet to be determined. And that the United States developed a crash program to deconstruct how, what these brainwashing techniques were and to sort of uh, win the brainwashing game and find, you know, figure out that they can be better brainwashers than the Chinese you know, and the North Koreans and find maybe a way to undo the brainwashing. So it was just, it made everyone afraid. So brainwashing became the meme of the early 50s. And ultimately, the 50s in general, a book was written called The Manchurian Candidate, which maybe was later made into a movie with Frank Sinatra. It's been remade some years later uh, with uh, um, Denzel Washington. So the story, I'm sure most of you readers have heard, the term Manchurian Candidate, um, the idea that someone could be brainwashed to assassinate someone or whatever. These, you know, reports all over the place. So. Um, what happened was when I first began researching torture, because I was a psychologist working with torture victims, and I was totally unbelieving the reports I was hearing in the early 2000s about U.S. use of torture, um, created in, apparently uh, um, by U.S. psychological scientists, um, I was I kind of blown away and started reading. I started reading a book, and I very quickly came across a very famous book called The Search for the Manchurian Candidate um, by a man who had been previously a, um, an intelligence agent for the State Department um, and uh, who had uh, the Freedom of Information Act, was one of the first early users of it, had dis discovered a set of documents that indicated that the CIA had um, been involved in a massive mind control program whose raison d'etre was supposedly to counter brainwashing of the sort that had happened during the Korean War. This is still the official story you'll read in the New York Times when they talk about that the CIA enhanced interrogation program was based on Chinese and North Korean techniques that the U.S. had studied, which were used to produce false confessions during the Korean War. And what were those false confessions? They were confessions of the use of biological warfare during the Korean War. And um, so I'm reading all this as, a, as kind of a working psychologist, but very interested in what's going on. And just with a background, by the way, my undergraduate degree at the University of California was in history. So I was somewhat aware of how to use the techniques of historical research. And my tendency would be to look at this issue in that way and say, okay, well, where's the documents? Let's look and see what the evidence says. Very simple. You know, if the evidence had gone the other way, I would be talking a very different story today. But the documentary evidence showed something that I never expected. I never expected to, to read and discover, I never expected to hear that there was a biological warfare campaign in World War II, or that the United States had uh, amnestied the, the scientists involved and the military men involved and had actually brought them into the fold of U.S. biological weapon research. I never expected to hear that that had occurred in World War II, or that these people, in fact, hadn't just been tortured to confess something. I couldn't, you know, so I went looking, well, let's look at the confessions. How insane are they, right? 
the, the reports in the secondary literature said that they were, they were unbelievable. Anyone who would look at them, anyone would recognize instantly that these things were um, crazy talk only you know, that came out of being tortured. Okay, well, let's just take a look and see what, what it says. And um, it was very difficult to find um, those reports. I ultimately was able to find one that somebody had posted online, um, uh, an academic, and it wasn't crazy, and it was, it was, it was quite amazing in its detail. And then, um, through time, I, I discovered others, and one of the reasons, again, that the, the Needham's, uh, Sir jo not Sir, but Joseph Needham's um, International Scientific Commission a report was censored um, in the United States was because one of the, a number of the appendices, he reprinted the, uh, um, uh, the confessions of some of these flyers. Oh, wow. Yes, and so there's, whoa, that was incendiary. That wasn't going to be allowed to be seen. Today, of course, you can go to YouTube, any of your listeners, and Google Korean War Term Warfare Confessions, something like that. Um, search on the YouTube site. And there actually, at the time, um, there were uh, um, films made of some of these confessions and uh, um, that were um, for Western observers who were there, brought in to, to, to talk to, um, the Chinese had brought them in to talk to their uh, to the press, and uh, you can see for yourself and decide for yourself how genuine these confessions were. Um, uh, they, of course, these films were not shown in American theaters. <laughs> <laughs> no, no way. <laughs> but you can, but you can. After this podcast, any of your listeners or yourselves can go and watch these some of these uh, confessions, and and you can see the anguish on these men's faces as they talk about how horrible they felt about doing this kind of thing. I think another reason, by the way, that uh, the biological warfare um, campaign was difficult for the Americans to conduct is that, um, and here I, don't, I can't speak to what degree the Ch Japanese experienced the same thing in their campaigns. Um, I think they did to some extent, but not as much. Um, the, the people involved, when they discovered what they were doing, were appalled. You know, uh, they joined up in the military, kind of dropping bombs, as horrific as that is, blowing people up from high up in the sky, um, which also, you know, does a number on people, by the way, just as the drone operators today have psychological problems doing what they do. You know, the dropping bombs or other materials uh, that were meant to, to produce hideous diseases in people, well, that just was un-American. <laughs> as one of them said, right? It just was a dirty pool. And uh, they, they just, uh, they didn't re rebel. I can't find any cases of someone who refused to, to, to um, be involved in this. But uh, um, so anyway, that's, you know, when I talk about the village and what happened, that was just one episode in what apparently were hundreds of various different uh, episodes that took place in North Korea and China in 1951, 52, 53, um, that um, readers, I mean, your listeners can, can read about either from articles I've written, but other, other people as well. And, and probably the best work on it was uh, by a couple of Canadian ac academics, um, Stephen Endicott and Edward Hagerman wrote a book published by University of Indiana Press 
in the late 90s. They just did a tremendous amount of research. Every time I go back to that book, I'm just so impressed by, by how much super well documented. They also reproduced some of the documentary material they found. It's called The U.S. and Biological Warfare, you know, Cold War Secrets, and uh, um, something like that. But, uh, and um, highly recommend that book for people who want to pursue deeper or to go online. And, and uh, um, now you can Google and get the, uh, you know, jo Joseph Needham's report or report of the International Scientific Commission for the investigation of the facts concerning bacterial warfare in Korea and China. Um, and the, my article on it was published by Insurge Intelligence at medium.com. But the report now, you can just, you don't have to, to read, although I think I recommend you read my article as context, as context, an introduction, if you will, to the report, which is very long. But otherwise, just pick up the report itself. It's 764 pages. And one of the most amazing documents you will ever see, um, truly. Um, so the CIA, um, of course, was involved in this to some degree as well. The, the Endicott and Hagerman book has an entire chapter on it. My my research shows that uh, though this was really the child of the of the military and, uh, and and military researchers for the most part. But the CIA was interested even earlier. The OSS and I did some research on this, which was the predecessor of the CIA. Was was very interested in biological warfare. I mean, U.S. biological warfare research began in earnest about 1941, around the time of the onset of World War II for Americans, and this was because reports were filtering in from China of Japan actually being involved in uh, large-scale biological warfare, and the Americans said, essentially, "Oh shit, um, we'd better get our act together here." And they began a crash program that was the most expensive program that the United States ran in World War II, with one exception. The exception was the Manhattan Project, um, <clears throat> which was the development of the atomic bomb. But the second most expensive research, um, military research program, was the one that came out of, ran ultimately out of Fort Detrick, which was in something called the Chemical Warfare Service. And, it, and then it morphed under different names during the war, but um, mainly to hide the program. It was very top secret and began developing, as they were in Britain as well, a, a large-scale biological warfare component. And um, uh, so that, uh, so the OSS, the predecessor of the CIA, was got in on this. Um, and they, of course, were wanting to develop assassination devices, small-scale use, of smaller scale use of these kinds of weapons for their own purposes, which was you know sabotage and murder and uh, things like that, <clears throat> and uh, they got approval to use some of these things at the end of World War II um, for use on crops. You know, so uh, one form of sabotage would be you know to to go in and uh, spread certain kind of uh, biological warfare material that was used against plants. Because one component, everyone thinks of biological warfare as, you know, plague, like, you know, it's very dramatic, yeah, fleas and plague or, or spreading dysentery or cholera, or, you know, just these horrific diseases against people. But there are plenty of organisms that attack plants. And from a strategic standpoint, 
if you can destroy the, um, you know, the plant, uh, I mean, the crops uh, that a country relies on to feed its people, you can create famine and starvation and you can undermine. Uh, so there were, there were definite plans about doing this in Japan. Um, they were still thinking they had to invade Japan and they were investigating things like brown rust or something, which is attacks rice and um, various other uh, types of devices. And, and some of them uh, also as uh, smaller scales assassination devices and uh, an incapacitation um, uh, chemicals to incapacitate an army. It may not kill them, but if everyone is sick with the flu, let's say, um, then you know, you have a, a kind of a hobbled army. And in fact, biological-related uh, um, conditions have um, always been a major factor in military operations. Um, so for Americans and uh, other in the British, and I assume for the Japanese too, the, um, in World War II, one of the primary uh, military elements of what was going on was malaria. And uh, the U.S. has all, often been involved in uh, research into U.S. military, research into and use of malaria. And if, you, if your listeners remember during the Iraq war or if yourself or other of your friends might remember being given various vaccines, including the anthrax vaccine uh, prior to the Iraq war. Um, oh, yeah, I, I, I got the full series there and I didn't take many of the malaria pills, but I was issued a shit ton of them. Yeah. What type of pills did they give you? I'm trying to Do you remember. remember? Well, you, let me ask that, you. that stuff. Did, Doxycycline was one of the things that they. That gave. was the one I was given. Doxy. So you, every day you're supposed to take it, right? Yes, it was a, yeah. it was an everyday thing. In in some units, most units didn't force it on their troops. You know that 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 seriously, but there mm -hmm. were other ones that would hold daily formations to make sure that their soldiers took it. Yeah. Yeah, well, one reason might be is I studied this issue because, of course, ultimately, I was to discover, along with other researchers, that the Guantanamo detainees were all dosed with one, a very particular type of anti-malarial medication known as mefloquine, or larium, is a, was the brand name. And you, you only took it, and you might know from other people who heard about it, oh, you only had to take it, not every day, just once a week. And so you'd have that one day a week you took the pill. Unfortunately, uh, the pill, uh, this drug had really powerful neurotoxic side effects. And the neurotoxic includes psychiatric. And um, now the military, who developed this drug, by the way, during the days of Vietnam War, and then insisted later that it be used by its troops. Um, uh, in subsequent um, wars, or they may not have been full-scale wars, but uh, subsequent deployments, the um, um, mefloquine was uh, mandated to be used in its full treatment dosage on every single prisoner who, who came into Guantanamo, wow. even though there was no reason to do it. There was no malaria at the time, none, in Cuba itself. And medical protocols, as established by military doctors who uh, we talked to and who have been, since been public and written journal articles, et cetera, about this episode, you know, there was no, it wasn't even proper medical protocol about how to handle the fear of any kind of malaria epidemic developing. It was totally unprecedented. And the reason for it, um, I and others who've studied this believe, is that it was, in fact, one of a number of different kinds of experiments that were run on Guantanamo prisoners um, during, during the, uh, 
the two the, the two thousands, um, and perhaps still to this day. By the way, um, since prisoners, even though small, small, much smaller amounts, still remain at Guantanamo, and uh, no doubt are still being studied in various ways, um, and not with their consent. The guys and I love doing the podcast. Being able to share our experiences in the military with allies and supporters means the world to us. But we can't do it all. We need you to share an episode of ours with somebody, anyone who you might think could be affected by it. Young people looking to join the military or parents advocating for one, conscientious citizens who care about the violence the U.S. wages in their name, Advocates for women and people of color who understand the harsh environment the military creates for minorities and the violence inflicted by some of those same minorities around the globe, and anyone else you think it might affect, please share this with them. But sharing our episodes is just one of the many ways you can support the podcast. In addition, there's Patreon, where we're blessed to have an array of wonderful supporters helping BT, Danny, and I pay for some of the podcast's expenses. Those who contribute $10 a month or more will be mentioned here as an honorary producer, helping keep you, our listeners, stocked with new episodes. But you don't have to contribute $10 a month to help us. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help keep us going, paying for hosting and storage fees, transcribing old and new episodes, promoting and expanding the podcast, and more I'm sure I can't think of right now. So let's bring out our honorary producers, and they are. Matthew Ho, Will Arends, Gage Counts, Fahim Shirazi, Henry Zamoda, James Higgins, James O'Barr, Adam Bellows, and Eric Phillips. Your contributions are so helpful to us. Thank you all so much. However, if Patreon isn't your style, you can contribute directly to us through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash Fortress on a Hill. Or please check out our store on Teespring. The great Bill Kropinski did an amazing job helping us design our first t-shirt, which you can find at teespring.com forward slash stores forward slash Fortress on a Hill. And if you use the promo code militarism, you get free shipping. 22 bucks for an amazing t-shirt and you get to support the podcast. And speaking of that, let's get back to the podcast. So um, I'm not sure where you would like to go. There's no different ways we can go from here. Um, I'd like to talk a little, a little bit about uh, your book cover up in Guantanamo uh-huh. and the, the detainee deaths that you, you elaborate on in your, in your book. Right. Um, well, it was, um, I was first uh, uh, keyed into the, uh, um, issue of the detainee deaths when there was, of course, a, a shocking uh, news story in, in uh, um, June 2006 when three detainees were discovered dead at the same time in Guantanamo. And uh, the United States military said that they had killed themselves as an act of asymmetrical warfare, um, as a, really a, an assault against uh, the Guantanamo authorities. It was a protest suicide, if you will. And um, they were supposedly found hung in their cells, um, although they had rags stuffed in their mouth and they had their hands were tied in front of them. 
uh, at least in two cases. And um, they felt that, uh, but they said uh, um, that they had uh, died from hanging, although later the autopsy showed that they had died not from hanging, but from asphyxiation. And which is a slight, you know, it may sound like, well, isn't that the same thing? You can't breathe when you're hanging. Yeah, but it does different things. And that the, the medical evidence that would have um, determined whether or not um, these people, in fact, had died from hanging or asphyxiation when, when uh, independent autopsy, autopsy officials were, were given a, a chance to look at the medical evidence, um, discovered that the, 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 the organs within the throat, in particular the hyoid bone, which is the bone that breaks when you're strangling somebody. It's kind of a floating bone in your throat. Um, and it's, and, and when, it, when it's whole, it's, uh, I mean, it doesn't break when you're hung. It's, it's, it's broken when you're like strangled. And other forms of evidence um, had, had gone missing. They'd been removed by the U.S. government and destroyed. Well, <laughs> you know, there was no reason to do that except to hide the evidence. <laughs> You don't, you don't remove evidence and, and, and destroy it unless you're trying to cover something up. Exactly. So that, you know, well, one, one sad truth about destroying evidence and covering it up is that it kind of works. It leaves you with, you know, so uh, it works in the sense that, yeah, the evidence isn't there. And the people, you're, you're, you're forced to construct a, a more circumstantial case um, unless you can come up with other direct evidence. Well, while still circumstantial, although trending towards direct, there was another piece of evidence that did surface. A guard who had been at Guantanamo Station that night by the name of Joseph Hickman, Sergeant Joseph Hickman, had uh, observed some very strange goings-on at that portion of the prison that night. He had seen prisoners taken out, three of them, um, just like three were to die, and driven off in an ambulance to another part of the, uh, the camp at Guantanamo, a part of the camp that was known to have a black site that was probably run by the CIA. They called it, uh, 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 he said that the, you know, the, the guards among themselves and you know, Guantanamo rank and file knew it only as Camp No and O. Because they called it that. That wasn't an official name. It was called Camp No because if you asked about it, they'd say there's nothing there. No? No? So they called it, well, that's Camp No. <laughs> it's a black site. Right? I, it's, I, it's, I definitely get how some soldiers would get to that point, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? And so, but he knew where they were going. I mean, he could see they were taking a road. That road only went basically there. That was the only thing along that road. And then they came back later that night. Uh, around midnight or so, and then subsequently, very shortly thereafter, were discovered supposedly suicides in their cell. So, um, and he also was present when uh, the camp authorities the next day lied, gathered kind of a, the, the guards together and said, now I know you're going to hear that people were uh, killed because they had uh, um, rags stuffed in their mouth and stuff, and uh, um, but really, uh, you're to tell everyone if asked that they died by hanging. <laughs> so he was telling them what to say. There was, you know, kind of denying, you know, trying to change the narrative and steer it towards their cover story. So Joe Hickman found a 
mainstream journalist uh, slash human rights worker, Scott Horton, not the Scott Horton, by the way, does the Scott Horton show, but journalist uh, and academic uh, too, named Scott Horton, different Scott Horton, if you will, who um, um, researched it more and published uh, an article in Harper's Magazine that was, was like a bombshell. The press picked it up. I mean, here was a, a mainstream uh, media um, journal, you know, Harper's, with a very respected academic slash journalist author um, who brought forth Joseph Hickman's story and accompanying material. And in this, they were also working with researchers at Seton Hall Law School who were also interested in the case, led by an attorney uh, um, who had been working with detainees. and. The, uh, uh, you know, this, this article won an award, um, uh, won an award is, I forget the award now, but like sort of like the best journal article of the year. And so it was very, you know, it was, and it's, and what it had to say was widely reported. And that's how I first heard about detainees who died. And then I, I'm reading this and I'm going, well, huh, three, three detainees, but, um, and then over the period of the next few years, some other, a year later in 2007, um, roughly not too long after, uh, or even before I believe the, the, the Harper's article came out, there, were, there had been a couple of other suicides at Guantanamo. Ultimately, there were at least three more suicides, at, Guant at least reported as suicides. And then there, I had one other thing that happened that was totally serendipitous. Um, that um, still gnaws away at me all the time. I was researching the, the mefloquin issue. Again, the reports that you know, mefloquin had been used. And so um, while some of the people who were researching this thought it was a really big deal, I, I'm the kind of guy who thinks, you know, you, you got to show me. I should have been born in Missouri. Like, you know, you know okay, if, you, if, if, if Mefloquine, you know, where's the documents on this, right? Well, yeah, they, had, yeah. they had found the document, the, the Guantanamo uh, Special SOP, Special Operating uh, Procedure um, for Medical In-Processing of Detainees that, that said you had to give each of them Mefloquine. Um, I later discovered that uh, overlooked in those protocols was that they also um, had been giving every single detainee who was flown into Guantanamo a scopolamine. Scopolamine, which the CIA had touted as a truth drug some decades earlier, and was, uh, can also be very disorienting, like mefloquine is, to many people who take it. And there was, you know... Uh, so to me and others, uh, this seemed to be prima facie evidence that the United States was at least trying to disorient prisoners as much as possible upon their entry into Guantanamo. And one of the things they would do to, to do that would, would be to use drugs upon them. Um, but they had to be careful how they did it. So they just, you know, they, what, you, you couldn't just give everybody LSD. When it came to Guantanamo, that that would have been would have caused uh, way too much. Uh, it would have been too too hard, too difficult to hide. So you need plausible denial. Yeah, and the plausible denial would be let's give people drugs that plausibly have a medical purpose, but the reality is we're using them for their side effects. And the use of drugs for side effect purposes is actually very common in medicine. Um, many people, myself included, take uh, baby aspirin every day. 
a baby aspirin was not created as a heart drug. That's the reason I take it. And um, its its purpose and its 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 development and discovery was not as any kind of heart medicine at all. No one even knew it did anything with that. But later, it was discovered that a side effect of uh, of aspirin was it tended to thin out platelets in the blood. And uh, by making it was a kind of blood thinner, if you will. And if you took a small amount of it, it seemed to reduce the uh, uh, heart attacks. <laughs> so. It was a drug. Other people will take Benadryl, which is a decongestant and used in various different concoctions out there, to go to sleep at night. They use it as a sleeping yeah, pill. Yeah. But it wasn't, it's not a sleeping pill, but it's used as a sleeping pill. You know, uh, psychiatrists will prescribe trazodone for sleep to, to psychiatric patients. Trazodone is not a sleeping pill. It's an antidepressant. But its side effect is that it makes you so tired it's, it, it was found that you could use it, it, you would prescribe it, in other words, for its side effect, not for its primary purpose. So mefloquine, and uh, so if you're, a, if you're a bizarro, evil doctor or psychiatrist, you can prescribe drugs to people to harm them based on the side effect profile. So that's what I believe they did at Guantanamo. And um, possibly at the, some of the CIA black sites, although um, I, I don't think they did as much of that there because that's not what they were researching. They, they, they were researching something else, um, um, which I'll, we'll get to. Um, so the, uh, um, the mefloquine, oh, so I'm researching mefloquine, and I've come across a, uh, I noticed that it's briefly mentioned or, or malaria problems, rather, at Guanta issues at Guantanamo was mentioned in a very early February 2002, only a month after Guantanamo had opened. Um, uh, minute, uh, official government minutes of um, an organization known as the uh, um, Army, shoot, I'm, I'm born as, but the Army Armed Forces Epidemiological Board. Um, and the Armed Forces Epidemiological Board is a medical board, you know, who would call in, uh, made up of uh, army officials and civilian officials in top areas like the, uh, the CDC, the, the Center for Disease Control, and others. And they would get together, um, you know, once a month to discuss some of the primary uh, medical issues going on in the military. And uh, in February of 2002, they got together, as they normally did every month, and they um, a man by the name of Captain Jeffrey Yund, who I s spoke to on the phone later, and, and didn't deny any of this, uh, who was, uh, uh, you know, uh, kind of like the, an aide-de-camp or whatever. He was a, a top aide to a, you know, to a general. Um, excuse me, not general, an admiral, because he was in the Navy, he was a Navy captain, um, and a doctor. Um, was told to give the report on what met, was the medical issues at Guantanamo, this newly opened camp. He says, well, we're doing this and that, and, you know, to deal with um, um, malaria, we're, you know, we're giving uh, doxycycline, and um, we're also, which was, I guess, a lie. I mean, or he didn't know, or he had been misinformed, it's unclear. And we're, we're doing, we're dusting down things with, you know, uh, DDT kind of materials to, you know, we're using nets. This is standard malaria control operations mm -hmm. that the military does. Yeah. The, um, 
and then he said, um, um, and, and as far as we're also, uh, someone asks, oh, what about mortuary affairs, which is one of the subdivisions of the, uh, uh, the associated with, um, you know, the uh, medical operations that go on at Guantanamo, mortuary affairs. It was just a department. There's a mortuary at Guantanamo, and if someone dies, sure. there's a place to bury them or deal with their remains or hold their remains for repatriation, whatever. And uh, he says, yeah, well, I just, you know, got to report to you that uh, a number of people have died, who came to Guantanamo died due to the wounds they arrived with. And then he just kind of went on. And they were dealt with appropriately. He just goes on. It's, it's just a throwaway, mm-hmm. right? And, but I'm reading this, and I'm shocked. I said, I've heard that prisoners had died at Guantanamo as early as January, February 2002. But I did know and had read that people had arrived wounded from the battlefield and that extraordinary measures had been taken. But no one ever said anything about any of them dying. Um, <clears throat> So I wrote this up, but I have not, I was totally unsuccessful. Here's where my frustration on all these issues we're talking about and why I'm so grateful that you've allowed me to come on your podcast to talk about these issues is that the mainstream media, for the most part, um, you know, there's exceptions like when that, Harper, uh, that Harper's article I was just mentioning came out. Um, but the... Uh, um, the you know for the most part these things don't make it into the mainstream press at all and they have you know and so my discovery in a u.s government document which was the official minutes of a meeting of top u.s medical officers and people from the centers for disease control reported that that people had died at guantanamo in the earliest days as was was and still remains totally ignored and I, I've since had at least one ind- other independent um, verification from somebody who was at Guantanamo in the early days to tell me that, well, yeah, everyone knew that happened. But he won't uh, sadly uh, go public with it. And unless I have other, at least one or two other confirmations, which are not going to be easy or I may never get, uh, I'm not going to do more with that because uh, what can I do? I've, I've, I've laid out what evidence I have. But um, to me, it's, it's pretty damning evidence. And um, there's an article online about it. And uh, it, you know, uh, I, I interviewed the people involved. And uh, um, the man who, who spoke at the meeting did not deny it. He said, he told me who his information came from. And he said the information came from a top medical official at Guantanamo. And uh, I later spoke to that top medical official. And he denied it. I don't remember anything about that. He didn't say this couldn't have happened. He just said, I just don't remember anything. <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> it, for all, there it is. Why would this person have made that up? Right? Exactly. And he told me he didn't make it up, that he definitely was informed of that. So um, in, anyway, this is just an example of how we have so little still of the story and why I went searching out to find out more about some of these other detainees who died. And I filed Freedom of Information Act requests on two of them. Um, Muhammad Al-Hanashi, uh, apparently a, a young and uh, charismatic fellow who died in 2009, May 2009, and um, a man by the name of Muhammad Abdul Al-Rahman, who died in uh, <coughs> also May, late May of 2007. What's interesting about Al-Rahman who uh, 
um, was that he had died um, within a year or so roughly a year from the three detainees who had died earlier, and he died in a way that was extremely similar to them. He was found with his hands tied behind his back, although the other prisoners were found with their hands tied in front of them. He was found with his hands tied, quote, snugly, as the observer, as the man who cut those bindings himself said, behind his back, hung from a high air conditioning vent, which was different. The others were supposedly hung from something at their window of the cell. I mean, the door of the cell. Was he was high from a, um, a air conditioning vent nine feet above the ground. So it's hard to how he, and of course, all of these people, there's cameras in all of these cells, and they're all under um, very close surveillance. They're supposed to be visually surveilled roughly every three minutes. So some guard looks in the room every three minutes. And wow. there's a, yes, and there's a video cameras in, the, in themselves that are monitoring this. <clears throat> so um, how did this happen, right? The, the, Al-Hanashi, the other person, I, you know, did, um, my book touches on a third by the name of Adnan Latif, but it, um, uh, he's not someone who I personally obtained the documents of, and I was looking at other documents that had been released online about him. But uh, he also had very suspicious elements around his death. All of these deaths um, were suspicious. However, in my read of them, they not all, it doesn't mean they all died. They weren't all necessarily murdered. They weren't, they weren't all necessarily victims of an experiment, um, which is what um, was suspected by Joe Hickman and others, myself included at this point, um, about uh, um, why those first three died in 2006. Al Rockman, who died in 2007, uh, you got to wonder too. He died. He also apparently had some kind of rag stuff, stuff you know, stuffed in his mouth. Um, and the uh, in my book, I make it clear that, that even the NCIS investigators who looked into his case, um, because after every death, um, the Naval Criminal Investigative Service is supposed to conduct an investigation of the death. And Al Rockman died while the investigation was still ongoing. By the way, the 2006 deaths and died in a very similar fashion, that he may have also been the victim of some kind of experiment or was killed uh, otherwise and then placed in a way to make it appear that he died. Um, although I sometimes wonder if Al Rockman himself wasn't uh, murdered in his cell by the guards. He's, he's one of the, I'd look at that situation. because I say this because a week to 10 days prior to his death, he, it turned out, and, that, and by the way, everything I'm telling you about, these things um, I've reported and they're in documents that people can read, government documents that I obtained by Freedom of Information at, um, at a website called GuantanamoTruth.com. That's GuantanamoTruth.com, where I've posted all the FOIA documents, hundreds and hundreds of pages I obtained on the deaths of these detainees. I'll, and, put, the, uh, I'll put the link to that in our show notes. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, uh, um, what was I saying? Oh, so that, uh, oh, a, a week to 10 days before his death, he uh, called in the, the, the uh, translator. He wanted to make a complaint um, to come to the cell, the, the linguist, as they called it. And he was complaining because he said he was, he was hearing guards outside his cell having sex. Um, and, you know, it was, it was disturbing him. 
Well, that's pretty amazing itself. Yeah. And in the book, you know, I mean, what, you know, were, were guards actually having sex outside the cell? That seems pretty amazing to me. I think it's much more likely that, uh, uh, or I, to me personally, that, that uh, they were pretending to make these sounds to, to drive him kind of nuts, um, either because they just felt like it and thought it was funny, or um, we're doing it as a planned, um, you know, a planned operation that they were told to do. Um, by uh, researchers who were, you know, studying the effects of uh, sexual uh, harassment and uh, um, sexualized forms of torture on detainees. Just the other day, uh, The New Yorker published a very long piece um, um, on the torture of Mohamedou um, Slahi, who uh, was ultimately released from Guantanamo, wrote a book called Guantanamo Diary, did very well, and his, his case has been in the, is one that the mainstream press has picked up, and um, as obvious from this article in The New Yorker, and, you know, in it, you know, they discussed some of the sexual style of torture that was done, women would sit on him and try and seduce him, or claim they had smeared menstrual blood on him, and you know, all wow. sorts of like this, because you know, for Muslim men, you know, uh, so, you know, we're it's the, a huge you know, deal. yeah, it's a huge deal. So we're, we're the guards outside, um, uh, Rockman's cell actually having sex or were they trying to torture him in a certain way? Or uh, I don't know, but the report, we do know that the report took place and we do know that a week later he was dead. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, it certainly is suspicious. Um, but his mo- whole mode of death is suspicious. And once again, there was destruction of ev- medical evidence. The, the rag that was uh, stuffed in his mouth or uh, disappeared, it was never kept for evidence. The hand bindings that had bound his hands <clears throat> were also lost, right? So they couldn't be examined. I mean, how were they lost? Thrown out with medical uh, trash, I think is what they said. Accidentally, somehow. Accidentally. Although, uh-huh. yeah. And, uh, um, and, and even when things weren't thrown out, such as the, the noose that he supposedly uh, um, constructed to hang himself, had a number of hair fibers somehow wound into the noose. And uh, when asked uh, whether or not they wanted, uh, when the lab said, do you want this, uh, us to run an analysis on what these hairs are, and CIS personnel said, no, uh, no, this is a, oh, he said something actually much more damning, something like that. This case doesn't require it, or no, or something. Ah, I'd have to look it up. I apologize, but 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 anyway, the main point being that they said no, don't do it. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, if this were a murder that took place, you're watching a T. I mean, many of your listeners have watched tons of TV shows about murder procedurals, and uh, how many times can you remember someone saying, "Oh, look, we found some hairs," you know. <laughs> We're bound in. We should we analyze those hairs? And the detective says, "Nah, don't do it. Don't bother." <laughs> yeah, no. It, uh, I I used to work with Army CID, and then we had very specific and detailed regulations about how we collected evidence. You know, the chain of custody, um, but especially about you know th- things like that. Something that is that's not a that's not something you would find if a person hung themselves. Um, so it's, yeah, it, it really has some questions. Oh yeah. And in, in this guy's case, I mean, the, the, the end of the ligature, the end of the rope that was constructed, um, 
was, you know, how did they attach it to a a vent? Now, the, the vent that was full of little tiny holes. It's supposed to be these rooms are so you can't commit suicide. Yeah, they're suicide-proof so rooms. Basically. They're suicide-proof rooms. Even the sheets are not supposed to be rippable or terrible. After the, the people died in 2006, the sheets at Guantanamo were supposed to now be using Bureau of Prison, you know, label anti-suicide sheets that couldn't be easily torn or ripped. Mm. And um, But somehow he was able to get a hold of a razor, which totally, how did that happen? And you know, slice these, um, the end of a, of a sheet into uh, about a dozen or two dozen little tiny sliver, um, like little mini ropes, mm-hmm. little, and, and tie them through the holes of nine feet up off the floor, by the way, the holes of this vent, so you could tie them all together and, um, uh, you know, be able to hang himself and carry his weight and hang him. Um, you, you had mentioned earlier that the guards were supposed to f- visually see him every three minutes. That's right. Yes. Yeah. And, wow. So how do they do this? So he saw, you know, so how did he do this? How did he find the time to do it? And then, and then, or didn't they see, he couldn't have done it. You know, even if he did it and stopped and managed, you know, how could the guards look at it, not see a rope hanging? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I, I can't imagine how long it would take well, if you, if you had yes. a stool and, and standing there threading them, it would take a long time. Yes. So, so they, they had pictures, you know, they, of course, when the investigators came, they took pictures of everything, but all the pictures have been censored by government. They, none of them were released, although um, I was able to get pictures of similar looking vents um, that were, had shown up in other photos, but not necessarily his vent. But even if we wanted to look at it today, or, or today said, okay, you're right, Jeff, let's, let's go have a huge investigation now. Let's go look at that cell. Um, it's already been changed because... The army investigators said, "Let's take out the, um, let's take out the uh, vent for examination." So they actually removed the entire vent and destroyed it. <laughs> so we'll never know, right? So it's just, again, this destruction of the crime, evidence at the crime scene. Um, another very important way in which evidence was destroyed or manipulated had to do, though, with something called the detainee information management system. And that was called uh, DIMS, D-I-M-S. And if you're a guard at Guantanamo, you get very used to using this system because this was the database for keeping track of everything a detainee said, where they moved, you know, uh, uh, what, uh, uh, what, what they, how they behaved. Everything was to be recorded. Everything at Guantanamo is recorded. It's recorded either in audio, video, or it's documented on, you know, in a database. Um, it's one of the most studied places on Earth. And um, when uh, Al Rockman, for instance, uh, was found dead, just prior to, to it, he, the, if you look at the DIMS, the D-I-M-S, um, it shows that he had been, was supposed to be in a um, interrogation with... Um, he was, he was supposed to be in interrogate, seeing interrogators up to five minutes before he died. <laughs> um, so when was he constructing this thing, by the way? You know, they had to come into his cell to get him. And um, but they, when they interviewed the interrogators and they interviewed the people, though, they said that, uh, oh, no, he, he didn't go to interrogation that day. He called in sick. 
basically, I can't go, I'm too sick, according to um, the interrogator himself and to a linguist. So, yeah, no, he said, you know, they gave slightly different stories too. So, that, but um, in the DIMS, what happened is the DIMS operator, the only reason we know this is the DIMS operator um, says, you know, hey, uh, we know this, uh, he was interviewed and uh, he said, uh, because there is a, a thing there that he, w but it was weird. He left for his interrogation. Um, in the DIMS record, it says that he left at 1150, uh, um, excuse me, like, like 1245. He returned from interrogation at 1255, 10 minutes later. Wow. It doesn't make sense. No, and, uh, no and then sense. five minutes later, he's supposedly dead. So, um, but he said the reason it looked that way is I, called or, or somehow it was documented that he had called um you know one of the main uh, uh detention of officials and said just checking in did al-rachman ever get back from his in, in uh his interrogation right and they said oh yeah he came back he got back he says okay and he says well he never marked down or the person before him never marked down that he left so he just marked down just kind of made up the times <laughs> And put them in, but he did uh, testify under oath that that he was told that he had gone to interrogation and hadn't been returned. So what? Flash forward now to two thousand and nine. So so that's a problem. And to this day, I'm having great difficulty getting the military um, own um, what's called AR sixteen report. It's a report that the army makes, CID essentially. Uh, makes um, on uh, after the death of a de uh, in this case of a detainee, and I, I've had them out for FOIA. They're being you know they're stonewalling it at the Department of Defense. Um, it's what's happening according to NCIS. Uh, um, uh, excuse me, no, according to uh, FOIA officials at Southcom Southern Command, which is where I made it. And um, you know who knows if I'll ever get them now. Why are they covering this up? What's taking so long? Other reports um, were released within a matter of a year or so. Uh, of request my request going back many years now. So um, they're covering it up. So the um, in two thousand nine, when Muhammad Al Hanashi was found dead in a cell in the behavioral health unit, where he's even under tighter um, surveillance. Um, supposedly strangled himself to death. Not something you hear happens too often. In fact, I, I always had heard that you could strangle yourself to death. Same, like, same here, yeah. You know, you, you know, he supposedly ripped his briefs, took the elastic off of his briefs, wrapped it around his throat, choked himself until he killed himself. And he was on a, a form of suicide watch then, wasn't he? <clears throat> well, whether he was on suicide watch or at the time, apparently he was not on suicide watch at least at that moment. Okay. He wasn't wearing suicide, um, special suicide kind of watch dress. Yeah. And uh, even though he had made uh, three or four suicide attempts within the previous couple of weeks, right? Wow. Including running as fast as he could in, a, in an exercise yard to ram his head into a steel bolt, leaving a huge uh. scar. Yeah. I mean, the guy was just driven into desperation. Wow. You know, uh, just multiple wounds on his head from banging his head, trying to slice his arms up. And this guy was trying to kill himself over and over and over again. 
And uh, yeah, he had been put at suicide watch very recently. But yeah, it's a big question I ask in the book. Why wasn't he on suicide watch that night? In fact, how is it possible that he even had briefs with an elastic band when those types of briefs had been banned from Guantanamo after the 2006 suicides? They, they were, the underwear were supposed to be boxer shorts that were highly uh, 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 rippable but very flimsy and couldn't hold any weight and just, you know, were, were almost like paper. But, but he had, uh, he, there's a whole thing about briefs and underwear at Guantanamo I go into in the book. It's uh, kind of interesting. But here's the point about Dims and Hanashi. As soon as all Hanashi is dead, somebody, and who that is still remains a mystery, somebody orders the Dims computer database to be shut down that no more entries are to be made into it. And, and in fact, then for the next 24 to 48 hours, there are no more entries. And the entries that had been made that night that he died disappeared. But we know those entries. it was booted back up, it was all gone. Well, no, no, they were still there when it was booted up, the entries. They were there when I re after I requested them. Oh, okay. Then they disappeared. Then they were discovered to have vanished. But we know they existed Here's because in the FOIA materials, the investigators comment on the DIMS, re the DIMS uh, reports that were made that night prior to his death. And um, the, uh, uh, but then so someone ordered it shut down. Why? I think they learned from the previous, uh, um, the, the suicide a couple of years earlier of Al Rockman, that if you let materials from the DIMS leak into the investigation, you're, you know, you could let in things that will harm our cover-up. So they just shut it all down. There will be, I mean, it's unprecedented. This thing is like standard operating procedure. Everything is done. It's drilled into you, you know. And, um, and then later destroyed evidence uh, of, of reports that still had been in the DIMS once an investigator came along actually looking for them. <laughs> um, when it was asked, uh, so in the NCIS, who was investigating this, to their credit, although I have many criticisms of NCIS, but to the people, the investigators on the ground there, um, or, no, excuse me, <laughs> the investors, so they, they report this back to headquarters. So, and the people at headquarters um, hear, hear about this uh, shutting down of the DIMS, and they go, oh, whoa, I mean, the, the, the people at Guantanamo, they're ready to shut down the investigation, stamp it, suicide, that's it, baby. And then they go, oh, no, you know, yeah, you're going to have to go back and find out what happened with the shutdown of this dim stuff. This is just, we, we can't, we're not going to sign off on this. Go back and find out what happened. And so um, the dims, they go back and they interview some people. And they are, they're told by other, you know, the guard, the joint detention group, other guards there that, uh, well, there's, a, there's some kind of a, uh, um, uh, default password that uh, the people can use to get into the system because when they look to see who had last signed into the computer system to make an entry about Hanashi, it was somebody who was anonymous. Well, you weren't supposed to leave anonymous reports. Every yeah, report how is that even you. possible? Yeah, exactly. How is it even possible? Right. But that's what they told NCIS. And so it was impossible. So not only did it was the, the, the last one anonymous, but the one just even prior to it, much earlier in the evening, that, I guess what, that was anonymous too. Um, how was it possible 
They said, well, there was just an account that you could do this. And that's what happened. And that's how it stood. And I, and I remember seeing this when I finally got the info. I went, wow, okay, so that's how it happened. Isn't that bizarre? But still, that was suspicious enough. Why would anyone do that? Exactly. That uh, was totally against SOP. To, what, what, and it just happened to be that night that he <laughs> found dead. Well, then I did some more research and I found a guy who had worked, turned out, had helped develop the DIM system at Guantanamo. He was a computer geek guy and kind of guy, and he had worked. He'd been commanded to, to work on the system, and he, he touted that at LinkedIn. It's one of his things that he did. It's amazing. LinkedIn is a wonderful – I don't know if it still is. The government may have cracked down. But people would say things like, yeah, I worked on the uh, Guantanamo security system. Great. Now I know who you are. I'm going to call you up. those good bullet points. And I'm going to ask you – yeah, right. I'm going to ask you about this. So, and, and I had found other people at various times, but – he was rare in that he was willing to talk about it. He had been disturbed about what he had seen at Guantanamo. And um, his name escapes me. It's in the book. Um, it's a, it's Wasn't he previously, he was uh, enlisted, he was an NCO there at Gitmo, and then doing the DIMS job, It was a, was it a contract thing, or was he still in the service? He was still in the service. No, he was, he was still in the service, he, but he had some knowledge, and he was at Guantanamo. And he spoke to uh, uh, Colonel Miller, Jeffrey Miller, who was a command, command, commanding Guantanamo at that time. And I guess had volunteered or it came up in a meeting. I, I don't know exactly how it came up, but it, he had the expertise to help them develop this database. Anyway, he, but he, so he knows a lot about this material. And I, I, taught, I told him, here's the story of NCIS. I said, this is impossible. We never constructed, there was no way that anyone could get into that system, yeah. you know, Unless, I mean, the only other way is if you were, you know, you had a protocol that you knew how to do from a top, and only people who had that were top, top, top people, right? Um, so that leads me to believe, you know, or perhaps you're a really good hacker. <laughs> you know, so you can't, in other words, just go do it by accident. Um, um, it, it, this isn't something that happened. It was the story NCI that was told to NCIS investigators was was bullshit. There Absolutely. was nobody who just went and just put in a like, here's the password password and got into the system. It just didn't leave their name, right? Yeah, yeah. No, it was a highly secure system, and um, uh, as you can imagine, and um, uh, so that was under you know in the death of Hanashi, of course, so it just becomes very suspicious as to, you know, why this was looking to be incredible evidence of cover-up from the very moments of his death. And there's a lot more about his case. One can go into it. Um, but so I, I tend to believe that um, at first, now I may have changed my, I changed my mind. At first I thought he was, you know, because he was very highly suicidal, and it's still a form, of course, of murder in the sense that you, you, you subject someone to torturous conditions until they, um, finally killed themselves. And in fact, there was evidence that he wanted to do that because he, um, there was a note found <coughs> written the day that he died by himself. Uh, he'd been witnessed writing it, according to reports, guards, uh, interviews, and it was there. And he's, you know, talked about how that, the, that day, earlier in the day, he had been very upset because, um, the, the at Guantanamo, they were going to, uh, um, they were going to change the rules so that this, the special operating uh, procedures that had to do with um, 
governing how prisoners were treated and the kinds of uh, um, materials they were allowed to themselves. And, you know, was the, the kind of, you know, Guantanamo had a very harsh regime set up at various levels. If you cooperated, you got more goodies. If you didn't, you were put into torturous conditions. And um, one place to escape that, of course, was in the medical ward, right? If you're in the medical ward, in this case, the behavioral health unit, which is like a psych hospital in Guantanamo, you know, you're not going to be treated as harshly as, as, as outside, at least temporarily. Well, they were going to say, no, we're going to take the way that this is now going to be run like the regular camps. And so he went to the chief psychologist, the, the head of the kind of BHU department, and protested this. Well, why are you doing this? And it means that you're going, and one of the things was being, you know, harsh treatment of the Koran and things like that that prisoners were complaining about. This is, you know, you're going to not allow us our religion. And, and uh, he said, well, you know, the guy said, well, you know, you, you, and he told him, you're, you're, you're torturing me here. And this would be torture. This is, you're torturing us. And, the, and, the, and by his own testimony, and the document, again, is at GuantanamoTruth.com, and I've written it online. I mean, the, 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 the head psychologist very, uh, did exactly what Hanashi described him doing. Hanashi described him as just suddenly turning around and walking away, leaving Hanashi standing there dumbfounded, totally depressed. Right? And he went back to his cell and said, uh, um, you know, I... Uh, um, um, I don't think I can handle this anymore. I can't take it. I'm just so depressed. And then, and then it's found dead later. I mean, I think it's, you know, whether, anyway, so there is that. And uh, the, the head psychologist himself, in his statement to NCIS, um, wrote, that did admit, he says, yeah, the guy came to me, he says he's being tortured. And he says, and I do what other, I do with every single prisoner who comes up to me and tells them they were being tortured. I just turn around and walk away. Because they're just trying to manipulate me. <laughs> wow, that's horrible. It's horrible. Horrible. This is like the worst kind of doctor you could ever imagine. Uh, so, uh, you know, and other people, for, uh, groups like Physicians for Human Rights and uh, I think Center for Constitutional Rights and Constitution Project and others have documented copiously ways in which, you know, medical officials... Um, have been drawn into the torture program and became really an integral part of it, which might bring us to, because I really only have, I mean, as I explained to you before, I have to go by, by 10 here, but about what happened with the CIA, where medical officials became involved in the development and the monitoring of the torture program. Yeah, I was, I was thinking, because I know we're, your, your time's coming to an end here, that we could have you back on and we could talk about that. Okay. Um, separately, because I, I really want to give that its due. Right, um, right. But it is worth noting then, I'll just in passing, sure. that you can, you can see that the presence, of, you know, the, 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 what, what, what comes down to unethical uh, behavior, if not malpractice, you know, by medical personnel at Guantanamo, you know, becomes, is only accentuated at, in the CIA black sites, where Back in 2002, medical officials are drawn into a program of what appears to be, you know, absolute type of experiments done on um, prisoners at the CIA black sites. And 
a memoir about this was published just last year. It was really published. I say, well, I did. I'm the one. Well, I'm not me, but it was published, so to speak, or it was released by the ACLU. Hmm. I facilitated by reproducing that report online and writing an article analyzing what this 90-page memoir by um, memorandum for the record, if you will, by the director of the CIA's Office of Medical Services, who had been involved in the CIA torture program. And and while uh, it it hit the press because a portion of that memoir discussed, made public the fact that the CIA had discussed the use of truth drugs in this interrogation program. Ultimately, they chose not to use the truth drugs for various reasons, they said. Um, And I, I do kind of even believe that but um but that was a very small part of the report so i said well let's look at the whole report and most people go okay that's the press that must be the story right the story must be oh they thought about using truth drugs but they didn't use truth drugs Mm -hmm. wow what a story but when i read the actual document i said wow that's not even really the story here no the story as i read it was he was revealing he was quite open it turned out that um that uh, there had there was that experiment program that they were using, but that was separate from the other. That there was there were two sets of torture programs going on. One was highly uh, regulated, was um, medically regulated, had uh, constant had medical personnel on site, twenty four seven. And, and, and everything was directly planned out. And, you know, if you wanted to use a, a torture technique, it had to be sent back to the, the, the RDI group, you know, to the, the, the headquarters. It was organized by a special component within the CIA called the Special Missions Division. And it was very, very tightly run. And then there was this other program where a guy by the name of Gull Rockman had been chained to the floor in freezing temperatures and had died at a place called the Salt Pit. <laughs> or the dark prison in Afghanistan run by the CIA and their contractors and that there were other prisons and, and that they didn't have doctors there. <laughs> they didn't have, things weren't highly regulated. They were using another whole set of interrogation techniques, which they labeled standard interrogation techniques, whereas the other program used something called enhanced interrogation techniques. So I looked at this and I said, what the fuck is going on? Pardon me. I said, you're telling me that there were two different ways of, in which the CIA ran their torture prisons. Why was that? And so for your future reference, we, we will look at, um, I'd be happy to talk to you about just what in the world was going on. Um, because it's fascinating and it's important and it opens up, I mean, it, it has direct linkages back to illegal forms of warfare and experiments that were done. Um, under MK Ultra, under um, and, and 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 whose origins go back to uh, the, the types of research that was supposedly done in response to the discovery, fake discovery, but the discovery of brainwashing about of U.S. prisoners of war about the use of biological warfare. It all links together. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Uh- that's it, it's it's incredible to listen to you, Jeff. I uh, I'm, I'm I'm sorry you're out of time for today, but yes, please uh, yeah. please uh, come back and, and chat with us some more. Um, yeah, we'll talk offline and figure out a good time to, to do that. All right. Well, uh, 
thank you, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Kay. I really appreciate you coming on Fortress on a Hill. Sure. Thank you very much for the time. I, I, I respect your work and, um, and uh, all the best uh, going forward. We're on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill and also at Facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at www.fortressonahill.com. iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Patreon, Spotify. You name it, almost anywhere you listen, we're already waiting for you. And hey, we're always in the market for more Patreon supporters. Please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com. And if you're not into giving us a monthly payment, think about giving us a couple bucks on PayPal. The link is in the show notes. Skepticism is one's best armor. Never forget it. We'll see you next time. You good people.